Good afternoon and welcome back to Midday Magazine for Wednesday, March 29th. I'm Shelby Herbert reporting for KFSK. A federal judge could issue a decision as early as next week to temporarily halt construction of Willow, ConocoPhillips' controversial oil drilling project in the National Petroleum Reserve. Two lawsuits filed by environmental groups and an Inupiat advocacy organization aim to overturn the Biden administration's approval of Willow. The plaintiffs have asked for an injunction to halt construction until the case is decided. U.S. District Court Judge Sharon Gleason said she'd try to have a decision on the injunction by April 3rd. The Interior Department's decision to allow three drill pads and 200 oil wells was a blow to climate advocates. It drew applause from ConocoPhillips and many constituencies on the North Slope, as well as Alaska's legislature and congressional delegation. The legislature and the trio who represent Alaska in Congress have taken the unusual step of jointly filing an amicus brief to offer their perspective to the judge. U.S. Senator Dan Sullivan told reporters about it on Monday. We are working hard to get the judge to hear our voices, literally collectively tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Alaskans to convince her that this project going forward, of course, abides by the law, but is strongly in the public interest. Bridget Pisarianos is an attorney with the firm Trustees for Alaska and filed one of the lawsuits. She says the amicus, or friend of the court, brief does nothing to negate her claim that the administration failed to follow environmental laws in issuing the Willow decision. This is unfortunately emphasizing Senator Sullivan's blinders that the state government and oil companies and our own congressional delegation from Alaska have to the impacts that Willow would have on local communities and the global climate. Nationally, opposition to the project built rapidly in February and early March. Anti-Willow videos on social media garnered millions of views, and young voters in particular say they feel President Biden violated a campaign promise. Biden said last week that he was inclined not to approve Willow, but was advised that ConocoPhillips would sue and likely win. The company has held the Willow leases since the 1990s. Monday was the anniversary of the Great Alaska Earthquake in 1964 and the deadly tsunamis that followed. Before that day, there was no formal way for the government to warn communities about the potential for tidal waves ahead of time. But in the decades since, scientists have been working to build and refine the tsunami alert system in Alaska. There was a test of that system today, and Anna Canny has more. People in coastal Alaska might hear a tsunami warning on Wednesday morning. It's just a test, but the people sending it out are worried that not everyone will know that. That's because the system used to send out tsunami alerts is outdated and overly complicated. We're operating on uh, a system that is probably closer to where meteorology and weather science was 20, 30 years ago at least. That's Dave Snyder with the National Tsunami Warning Center in Palmer. 
At 10.15 on Wednesday, he'll send a warning signal out to local radio and TV stations. During a real tsunami, warnings would go out on cell phones, too. You'd receive a message on your lock screen with an irritating tone. Snyder says that's not supposed to happen during the test, but it could happen anyway. And that's because of the way automated systems talk to each other. When the warning center puts out an alert, all kinds of non-government entities like social media or weather apps can pick it up and spread it. And sometimes they misinterpret it. That means mobile alerts might not specify that it's just a test. Uh, There could be messages looking like a real problem when it really is just a test message. So we do rely on our third-party private industry and enterprise to make sure that they're making sure that they understand the code that we're using so that they can make sure we're not over-alerting or scaring or, or harming people through bad messages. It's also possible that the warnings will reach people outside of the testing zone. That's because tsunami warnings are issued using the same boundaries as weather forecasting. They're generally very large areas, and they're not designed for tsunamis. That's led to imprecise warnings in the past. One of the uh, results of this will be to see, are there places that are getting this alert that shouldn't? And we may find a couple of those places. The technology for sending out tsunami warnings is still very much a work in progress. In a report last year, the NOAA Science Advisory Board called for a total overhaul of the U.S. tsunami warning system. But Snyder says that could take decades. 20 years from now, when we've redesigned the alert system, it won't happen. But it's a a technology thing, and we're we're constantly working to refine that. In the meantime, the warning center is hoping to collect feedback from people in tsunami zones following Wednesday's test. People can submit their comments at www.ready.alaska.gov. In Juneau, I'm Anna Canny. On that note, the community siren test in Petersburg went off at 1209. Again, this was just a test of our community siren system. The Alaska Marine Highway System doesn't have enough crew to man all of its ferries this summer. The system needs about 150 more workers, both on water and on land. More than 200 workers have applied for ferry jobs in the last year, but the state only has managed to hire a few. As Coast Alaska's Angela Denning reports, the state is making changes to its hiring systems, but it may be months or even years before the ferry system is running smoothly again. Micah Hasbrook has worked for the Alaska Marine Highway Service for 17 years. I've had permanent jobs on the Malaspina, the Taku, the Lakanti, and I've been on, the, I think I've been on the Kennecott now since 2017. She's an able-bodied seaman, meaning she mans the wheel or does other board jobs reserved for more experienced workers. She loves the work, but says in recent years, the job has been challenging. Longtime staff like herself have had problems keeping their paychecks year-round when the 50- and 60-year-old ships get tied up for maintenance. Other times, she can't get days off. Hasbrook says workers cover extra shifts because of short staffing, and then they're told they can't take vacation because of short staffing. I always think, oh, it can't get worse. And then it does, but yet the system's still somewhat there. It just It's mind-blowing. There's a huge payroll issue going on right now. Erling Wally is the regional director of the Inland Boatmen's Union of the Pacific, the largest of Alaska's ferry unions. He says paychecks don't always include all of the hours workers turn in. He doesn't blame payroll workers because they're short-staffed, too. I'm not pointing it out that it's this person's fault. It's that whole payroll issue. They need to recruit people in there. And we understand that, but we still need to get our members paid. 
the shortage of maritime workers is worldwide. The pandemic didn't help. But Wally says Alaska has specific problems. A report released in January by a state contractor shows that people are applying for ferry jobs. The state received 241 applicants over the past year. Even though most were qualified, only four were hired. The report said, quote, Many applicants were lost due to a lack of timely communication. It said the process flow is creating a bottleneck in the delivery of information to applicants. Sam Dapsevich is a spokesperson for the State Department of Transportation. He says the applicants got lost in the mix. There was no single coordinator um, that was dealing with recruiting and onboarding. Plus, sometimes the waiting period is too long. Applicants didn't want to wait months for required credentials from the U.S. Coast Guard and the state. Dapsevich says that's being addressed. They now have a position dedicated to recruiting and have a team meeting regularly. They've created a program where new workers can get on-the-job training, so they'll get paid when earning credentials. And they've beefed up advertising. He says they're recruiting on social media, in papers throughout the state and in Washington, and they're hitting job fairs. Believe it or not, this coming week we have one, two, three, four, five, six, I think seven career fairs we're hitting, uh, two of them out of state at maritime communities. But that isn't likely to help in time for this summer. One of the state's main marine highways connects communities from Yakutat in northern southeast to Bellingham, Washington. Two of the state's largest ferries, the Columbia and Kennecott, were scheduled to run that route. But the DOT announced there's only enough staff to man one of them. If we were to try to run both of those ships, it was going to result in uh, cancellations, um, burnout of, of the crew that we do have. Dapsevich also addressed the payroll issues the union had complained about. He says those are partly because payroll was moved under the Department of Administration. He says they plan to move payroll back within the ferry system because of the system's specific needs. Wally says despite all the problems right now, the marine highway system is worth fighting for. He says working on ferries can be rewarding. You create a family on board and you meet interesting people. This is a good job. This is one of the best jobs I ever had. But you need to get paid, and you need guaranteed work. So um, I think at this point, the Marine Highway can only go up. We've, we, we hit rock bottom. Robert Venables is the executive director for the Southeast Conference, a regional nonprofit that advocates for economic development. Venables says the Marine Highway system is in a perfect storm, but it's been a long time coming, starting with a very old fleet. But he says the state has identified new solutions, and his outlook is very positive. There is a, a much brighter future ahead, but it's going to take a couple of years to get there. Venable says it's clear the ferry system is critical to Southeast. It's a lot cheaper than taking a plane and has more flexibility moving cargo, such as vehicles. This year, the organization is planning to get updated information about the impact the ferry system has on communities in the region. Reporting for Coast Alaska, in Petersburg, I'm Angela Denning. In Congress yesterday, some Democrats referenced the Nashville school shooting to renew their calls for a ban on weapons like the AR-15. Alaska Congresswoman Mary Peltola, on the other hand, spoke of her support for the Second Amendment. Alaska Public Media Washington correspondent Liz, Liz Ruskin reports. I'd like to recognize the gentlewoman from Alaska, Ms. Peltola. 
Peltola spoke at a hearing of the House Natural Resources Committee. I just appreciate the opportunity to put a plug in for the many, many, many Americans who are responsible gun owners. The subject was the Pittman-Robertson Act, a 1937 law that taxes guns and ammunition and sends the revenue to the states for hunter education, shooting ranges, and wildlife conservation. Gun ranges, Peltola says, give kids a chance to learn gun safety and to be ethical hunters. You look at some of the tragedies that are occurring, and those aren't hunters. Those aren't kids that have grown up with hunting and um, the good values that I think um, hunting and hunting families provide. Peltola is a Democrat serving her first full term. Her predecessor, Don Young, was a fierce protector of the Second Amendment and a board member of the National Rifle Association. Peltola has tried to take a middle position on gun control, disappointing some Alaskans who voted for her. Juno retiree Ben Muse says he got a letter Monday from Peltola's office, a response to a letter he sent weeks ago asking her to support gun control. It was very vague. She sort of did some hand-waving about uh, the Second Amendment. Peltola wrote that she supports encouraging safe gun storage and enforcing laws already on the books, as well as prioritizing behavioral health. Muse says he doesn't regret voting for Peltola, but her letter hit him hard, especially coming the same day as the Nashville school shooting. I understand the need to balance the compromise in a state like this, the different interests, and sometimes compromise involves compromising on things that are, are painful to compromise on. But the letter she sent me was just totally inadequate to the, the day. Peltola's position on guns isn't wholly satisfying to Second Amendment advocates either. The Gun Owners of America lobby gave her a D rating last year. Reporting from Washington, I'm Liz Ruskin. Nikiski Republican Representative Ben Carpenter introduced a bill in the Alaska House that would create a 2% state sales tax. Carpenter's bill, released Monday, is part of a collection of proposals he said would address the state's long-term financial concerns, including a grim oil revenue forecast. Alaska has never had a statewide sales tax and is among just a few states that don't. The state also does not have a personal income tax and is the only state to have neither. The largest proportion of Alaska's revenue comes from oil. Carpenter did not respond to requests for an interview before airtime. But at a candidate forum in November, he indicated he wouldn't consider statewide sales or income taxes. The simple answer to a very simple question, which is a yes or no, is no. I'm not going to support any new taxation without having a conversation about many other things. But he said he didn't want to exclude anyone's solution. He said the fiscal policy working group he was on last year recommended a mix of solutions, including reducing state spending and finding new sources of revenue. So to say no, carte blanche on that one topic, to say no new taxes, to put myself in a position that says uh, I can only look at one thing at a time and no, I can't, I can't support taxes, new taxes. Then the next question comes up and says, uh, do you support um, cutting state spending? Yes, I do. Okay, well, now somebody's only for cutting spending and not for taxes and, and we pigeonhole ourselves again. 
More than 100 municipalities and boroughs around the state already have a local sales tax between 1% and 7%. The 2% proposed by uh, Carpenter would be collected on top of those local taxes. It would not make exemptions for groceries, medicine, or other areas that have been exempted in previous sales tax bills and in many other states. Carpenter also proposed a bill to reduce corporate taxes in Alaska, which he said discourages companies from doing business in the state. The bill would reduce the cap on corporate taxes from about 9% to 2% and make rates the same for all companies, regardless of size. Carpenter's sales tax bill was set for introduction during the House Ways and Means Committee meeting Monday night. But that introduction was canceled.